This morning's sermon text comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 10 through 20. It can be found on your pew Bible on page 823. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray together. Reconciliation is such a beautiful drama of uh, reconciliation being worked out before our eyes, uh, Lord, and how we long that we would see and submit to everything you have for us in this portion of your word with the memory very fresh of how you sought and found each one of us. That we would all sit under this word as uh, the reconciled ones. And we pray in particular today, Lord Jesus, for those who have come into this room, who woke up this morning with the wrath of God still abiding on them, not yet joined to you, not yet born again, not yet believing on you, not yet repenting. And we ask for your mercy to be upon them. And that today, under your grace, would be the day of their salvation. We pray in your name. Amen. Um, it's often the case on Sunday morning when I'm, uh, when I'm doing my last uh, look over the, the, the sermon that I listen to music while I do it. And that's because I love music. I'm totally fascinated by music. And um, I have two big frustrations, well, I have three, three big frustrations in my life. One, I'm a Seattle Mariners fan, so it's very painful, and for the foreseeable future will be very painful. Number two, uh, I, I wish that I understood math better so that I could, uh, so that I could uh, be more conversant with scientific things. And then the third uh, great frustration uh, is that I love music and can't carry a tune in a bucket or, uh, or keep time, okay? But I love music. I, I, I love to talk about it. I'm fascinated by it. Um, it thrills me. 
but I'm never content just talking about it and learning about it because I want to listen to it, right? What it means to love music is that I don't just want to talk about it. I want to listen to it. I want to hear it. But you know what? Even, even then, most of the time, listening to music, even listening to music, doesn't fully describe what happens to me when I'm, when I'm, when I'm exposed to beautiful music because something happens very often to me when I'm listening to music where I want to get inside the music. It's so beautiful that I want to get inside of it. I want it inside of me. And this morning I was listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and I got to the third movement and there's just this swirling, uh, beautiful, just layer upon layer of things that Beethoven is putting together. I just felt completely surrounded uh, by the beauty of uh, God's goodness. And you know what? This is very much, my experience with music is very much like the gospel in this sense, you know, the, the gospel has a music to it. I mean, it's good news. It's beautiful. And God sings this beautiful music over his fallen creation. And he opens our ears to hear it. And our hearts that he made for himself resonate with that music. But you know what? We, we, we talk about the music of the gospel, but that's never enough. We want to hear the music of the gospel. But even then, listening to the music of the gospel, hearing the truth of God's promises, even that doesn't satisfy us in the end, right? Because there's this point where when you hear, when the gospel news is breaking upon your soul and you're, the Spirit is enabling you to see these layers of God's purposes and his grace toward you and you see the truth about yourself that you're a sinner who's weak and broken and you've offended against the holy God the creator of everything who rightly deserves all your worship and yet in that breach what has happened that holy God the offended one has come in the person of his son to repair the breach that your sin made when you think about that when you slow yourself down long enough to reflect on that you want to get inside that music and that's called worship and you want that music inside of you and Jesus builds his church like a great instrument, and he tunes his church to play, to reverberate, to resonate with, to play, to echo back the music of his gospel. And the, cross, the, the church that he builds is made in the image of his cross, my friends. And we've been thinking as we've been in Matthew 18 about two great truths about the cross that shape the character and define the passions and the relationships inside the church. And those two truths are this, truths of the cross that shape the church, that, that form the church in the image of the cross. Truth number one, the necessity of the cross. Jesus Christ, for everyone inside the church, Jesus Christ had to die for their sins. Now, that fact, that strain in the music of the gospel, that particular line, melody line in the gospel, it's a wonderful melody line because you know what it does? It means that there is no one in the church who needs the cross more or less than anyone else. 
It equalizes, the, it equalizes the entire church. Everyone who is joined to Jesus Christ, assembled in his church, friends, is equal before God. And that fact should change the way we think about our relationships with each other and the way we do our relationships with each other. And that's one of the things that Jesus is at great pains in Matthew 18 to clarify for his disciples. And there's a second great strand of the cross that also has that same impact. Not only is the cross necessary, Jesus had to die for the sins of everyone who was in his church, but the cross also is defined by its desirability to Jesus Christ, meaning that Jesus not only had to die for the sins of everyone in his church, but he wanted to. He wanted to. He gave himself as a free will offering to the Father on behalf of every single person whom he calls to himself and gathers inside his church. And there again, everybody is equal. Jesus didn't want to do that more for some people inside his church or less for others, but everyone equally. And the music of the gospel, when it plays, when it resonates, when it reverberates in the church, changes us. You see, the world isn't like that. The world's not equal in that way. Something different ought to obtain in the church, particularly when our relationships are under pressure. And we've seen that these two uh, truths of the cross uh, that Jesus has been uh, going after, if you will, uh, as applications of these two principles, he's gone after the reality of our pride, and he's gone after, uh, he's gone after the, the issue of our pursuit of holiness. And now what we're looking at as we get to verses 10 through 20 is the whole issue of what happens what are the implications? What does it mean for the, the church to be made in the image of the cross that Jesus bore, particularly when our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters are under pressure? And we're going to be thinking about that over the next uh, several weeks. Issues of forgiveness and church discipline and the structure in the church and how we're supposed to handle, handle uh, relational conflict. And that's what I want to start thinking about this morning. So we're going to talk about a crisis. We're going to look at, from our text, we're going to look at a crisis, the response to the crisis that Jesus prescribes, and then the power or the motive uh, for our relationships. So let's look first at the pressure on our relationships in verse, uh, in verse 15a. And really, it's just the first six words in verse 15. And in many ways, that's the whole sermon text, everything to the left of the first comma in verse 15. It's a remarkable tip of a remarkable iceberg. The first six words, look at these words in verse 15. If your brother sins against you. Now that is an amazing phrase. It is dense with gospel implications for our relationships with one another inside the church. Think about everything that Jesus teaches us about his church just in those six words. your brother. Friends, you know what it means to be inside the church? It means that you have been called into a family, the only family that will last forever, a family that is not biological but theological, 
a family that will endure forever, that was conceived in the Father's heart from before the foundation of the world. It was his purpose that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. God the Father was planning a family from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus is simply talking about the implications of that to his disciples. You have a brother. You're united to him more closely than your blood relatives. When Jesus gives himself to you, he gives you to his other disciples as brothers and sisters, as their brother or sister, and he gives them to you as your brothers and sisters. So what it means for our relationship, the ultimate context for our relationships inside the church is not a shared discipleship, but a, fair, a shared family membership. That's astonishing. And we could just follow the implications of that into the practical details. Do you even know the names of everyone in your family? Pause. How weird would that be? We're not big enough for you to be off the hook to know the names of everyone in this room. Your brother, your brother sins. So wait a second. So this family looks a little bit like my family. (laughs) Jesus calls us into a family that's imperfect. My brother sins. Perfection is not the condition for membership and participation in the church anymore. Think about how crazy that is, right? Then health is the condition for your admission to a hospital. Can you imagine going to the ER and having them say, are you sick? You say, yes. And they say, go back into the parking lot. And he sins against you. The church is a hospital for sinners. And this brother sins against you without condoning it or excusing it. Jesus wants you to be realistic, friends, about the inside of his church. This is Jesus talking here. Be realistic about the inside of the church, that, the, that, the, that this crisis, so sometimes your brother is going to sin. It's not just going to be he's not going to sin over there. He's going to sin against you. It's going to get personal. And so let me just pause here and and just reflect on two vital implications of Jesus' teaching here about his church. This This is so helpful, the realism. You see, this is, again, another glimpse of why you should trust the New Testament. See, if you were making this up, if this were a fraud uh, you wouldn't tell on yourself, and Jesus certainly wouldn't. If Jesus was just a, a, a cardboard comic a messiah who was not real, then to acknowledge openly from his own mouth that his disciples would not just continue to sin after their conversion, but they would sin against each other, friends, you wouldn't put, that's bad press, that's not good optics, as Washington would say, you wouldn't put that in if you were making it up. It has the ring of truth. And what Jesus wants us to be first and foremost is realistic about his church. Friends, conversion does not end our sinning. Amen? 
The only thing that ends our sinning, well, sanctification doesn't end our sinning. The only thing that ends our sinning is glorification. Freedom from failings, as John Owen says, is the fruit of glory. So until we are in glory, we are not going to be free from failings. So we must not impose a burden of perfection upon one another in our relationships with each other. You see, that's the first thing that Jesus is freeing us from in that phrase in verse 15. That means that we are going to be living in an environment that isn't conditioned upon our perfection in our relationships with one another. So there's got to be some other power that keeps people together besides our good behavior. Because if the only thing keeping you together with somebody is your good behavior or their good behavior, guess what? You're never going to be close to them, and you're never going to be close to them for very long. Because you won't keep that up, and no one does. So we must not set booby traps for one another or trip wires for one another in our relationships that are triggered by their sin. Oh, that's it. The inside of the church is Jesus Christ's gift to us so we can learn what it means to relate to fellow sinners and yes, even to learn how to dance with them according to the music of the gospel. And who better to teach us than Jesus himself? The second pastoral observation that grows out of uh, that those six words in verse 15 has to do with our relationships. Let's go a little deeper on the whole idea of our relationship. I want you to see, uh, friends, from this tip of the iceberg, the vision for relationships that Jesus assumes is going to be uh, defining the character of the inside of his church. Now, just think about that phrase. If your brother sins against you, Now, what Jesus is assuming is a couple of things there. He's assuming that you are going to be close enough to somebody long enough outside of your household, close enough to them, regularly enough, long enough for inside the church for them to sin against you. Now, think about that. Jesus assumes that that's going to be a normal experience. He's not condoning it, and he's not, conf- he's not excusing it, but he is saying that this is going to be an experience of his people inside the church. And in order for you to be sinned against by somebody who is your brother, you're going to have to be up close and personal with them long enough, regularly enough for that to happen. You're going to have to be up close and personal with them long enough and regularly enough that the good behavior is going to wear off. That there's going to be reality. So let me ask you a question. Outside of your home, is there anyone in this church with whom you are in close enough, regular enough, deep enough contact that you are exposed to the reality of their sin against you? And in which, we'll put it on the other side, in which you, in which they are exposed to the reality of your sin? Friends, is there anyone? 
Jesus assumes that there will be. Now that has a lot to say about the kind of life that we should be living as a church. You know, if this were a megachurch, which it is not, we would have to be figuring out all kinds of ways uh, to, to try to translate this to a very difficult context. You know, our context is, is not difficult. We are a smaller church where people can be known. And friends, I just want to challenge you. What does your life look like concretely? Are you simply polite and always on your good behavior with people? Or is there anyone to whom you are regularly being called to extend forgiveness? Because they have sinned against you. And is there anyone from whom you are being uh, receiving forgiveness because of your sin? If, there, if, if you don't have the, those kind of relationships inside this church, your relationships are not close enough and they're not real enough, and they don't comport with what Jesus' vision for the relationships of his people inside the church should be. So friends, think practically. If today is going to be the last day that you bide your time on the fringes of this assembly, in this church, you're going to have to make some concrete decisions. Like you're going to have to get the church directory out. And you're going to have to start to learn names. And you're going to have to start to initiate contact with people who are outside of your normal circle of folks. You're going to have to begin to step out into places. And it's scary, okay? But it's always good. You're going to have to step out into places concretely, like coming to a Bible study, like coming on Sunday night and having dinner, like being part of the work day. When you sweat next to somebody and you see what a lousy job they do spreading mulch, guess what? You get closer. When you see what a crummy job I do pressure washing those stones, I obviously don't do it enough. There's reality to the relationship. Friends, that's how Jesus, that's how relationships are strengthened. Think concretely. Okay, so that's the first issue. There's pressure on our relationships because of our sin toward one another. And Jesus is assuming in that picture that our relationships are going to be, we're going to be close to one another in the church and log time together doing all kinds of things. But what happens now? What is the response? What, what are we supposed to do when, when we are sinned against by our brother? And that's the second point, which is what Jesus commands us to do, to pursue our relationships. And he does that in a negative command first and in a positive command. And the negative command is in verse 10. He says, don't despise your brother. Don't, don't despise. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. And he's talking about his disciples. Now, that's an amazing thing because he's telling disciples to watch themselves that they don't despise other disciples. Now, why would they ever want to do that? I mean, we just got done getting down through verse 9, 
And what Jesus has done in the first nine verses of Matthew 18 is he has made it very clear to all his disciples that they are vulnerable to sin in the, and temptation in the world from the outside, and they are also a culpable for their sin that rises up from within them. We're not just victims, but we're also perpetrators of sin. So he's already established the foundation that all of his disciples are vulnerable to sin, and all of his disciples inside the church are culpable for their sin. So why in the world would he then need to say to those vulnerable and culpable sinners, don't look down on your brother when he sins? You know why? Because self-righteousness dies very hard, especially in Christians. And Jesus is telling us here that he will not tolerate a culture of relationships inside his church that is driven by self-righteousness. And it dies very hard. And the only thing that can liberate us from our self-righteousness is listening to, loving, and embedding yourself in the music of the gospel by which he saved you, friend. Don't despise your brother when your brother sins against you. It would seem like the most natural thing in the world, right? What it means to despise our brother is to do exactly the opposite of what the shepherd does in verses 12 and 13. This illustration that Jesus uses that we talked about uh, two weeks ago, this beautiful image. You know, the shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray. And what does he do? He doesn't say, stupid sheep. He doesn't cut his losses. He isn't energized by anger. He leaves the 99 on the mountains, which means they're spread out. They're not safely in the fold. He is so bent on searching for the one lost sheep that he goes and he pursues the sheep. In other words, what the crisis is that distance has opened up between the shepherd and his sheep. Not because the shepherd has done anything wrong, but because the sheep has done what it is, should not. And what the shepherd does not do is say, well, I'll let that status quo of distance continue. If he did, he would be despising his sheep. What it means to despise your brother is to not be like the shepherd and to disobey what Jesus says in verse 15. You notice what happens in verse 15. It now moves out of illustration to concrete application. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. In other words, when he sins or she sins against you, guess what happens? A breach, a rupture opens up. And so now there's distance between you and the one who has sinned against you. And now what's supposed to happen? As a matter of pure justice, what ought to happen, according to our common sense, our worldly common sense and wisdom, is that the guilty party should acknowledge their guilt and should move back toward us and ask to be reconciled. And that is not what Jesus tells you to do. Because it's not about justice, as far as you're concerned. Jesus says that you're the one as the offended party who is obligated before him to close that distance. That is amazing. That is not like anywhere else. That is crazy 
and beautiful. To despise your brother is to distance yourself from him. To despise your sister is to withdraw from your sister or to withhold yourself emotionally or physically, you know, in terms of making space and avoiding them. And against our instincts, Jesus commands, against our instincts, our deepest instincts, Jesus commands us not to use our brother's sin against us as the occasion for rupturing our relationship with them. Instead, what Jesus commands us to do is to not despise our brother, but to prize our brother, to love our brother enough to close that distance, to move toward them. This isn't about justice, right? He commands the offended one to move toward the offender. And I've been thinking about this all week and about the difference between fission, which, okay, Gary's here, so I'm very self-conscious about talking about physics with Gary in the front row, okay? And I should be arrested for practicing physics without a license, okay? But this is really important because the difference between fission and fusion is more than just uh, which vowel you're using and how many S's. It's about power. You know, the Hiroshima bomb, when I lived in Japan, I went to both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I saw these places. And in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those were fission bombs. In other words, there's a big atom, and it's split. And a lot of energy is released. E equals mc squared. Fusion, which is a hydrogen bomb, and our sun, is about atoms being not split, but merged together. And way more energy is required at the front end for that to happen because you have to overpower the resistance of the atoms to one another. You've got to, you've got to come in with a force that's stronger than the natural status quo forces that would keep them apart. But once you do that, way more power is released on the back end. And that is exactly what Jesus is describing. He's describing something so remarkable that it goes, what should happen is the offender should the offended should be repelled from the offender that's what should happen the the more that you know when that offender acts against you you should say well i'm out of here and what and that's the way the world works and that's the way our hearts typically work jesus is describing something so amazing so much more beautiful this drama of reconciliation where what should be repelling uh, what should be repelling from one another is being brought together and they're united verse 15 if your brother sins against you go and tell him his his fault and if he listens to you you have gained your brother now that is way more powerful but the question becomes, where is the power for that going to come from? Because that's what Jesus commands us to do. Where, friends, you can't do that on your own. You can't do that by your willpower. You can't do that with any worldly ethic that says, well, I should just love my fellow man. It won't happen. There's only one power in the universe that's capable of overcoming the breach between 
an offended party and the offender. There's only one power, and that power is the gospel. It doesn't come from within us. It comes to us. And you notice how Jesus talks about this at two levels in verses 10 through 14. See, the only power for the relationships inside the church is the gospel by which Jesus builds his church. And in verse 10 and 14, you notice you're, Jesus is telling us about our brother's story. He's saying, don't despise, don't despise one of these little ones. Don't despise your brother when he sins against you. You know why you shouldn't? Verse 10, because I tell you, Jesus is saying, I know what I'm talking about. I tell you that their angels in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the Father knows them. The Father cares about your brother who has sinned against you or your sister who has sinned against you. He is fully informed about all that they have done. Justice is not in your hands. And yet, verse 14 adds another layer, right? So then it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The reason you shouldn't despise your brother is because they are the object of the Father's affection and attention and care. And secondly, it is your Father's will that they should not perish. You see, what Jesus is describing is the value of the brother or sister who sinned against us to the Father. He is encouraging us to look, to see our brother or sister through the eyes of the Father's heart. And then when he describes the shepherd in verses 12 through 13, we know he's talking about himself. And he's encouraging us to see them through the eyes of his heart, that they were the sheep that's gone astray, and that he desires that they be recovered because that's his shepherd's heart. He is living proof. Jesus' presence on the earth is living proof that it is the Father's will that not one of our brothers or sisters should perish, even those who sin against us. You see, their angels are in heaven, and the Son of God is now here on earth ministering. Heaven has come down. And if we are mindful of that, we will not despise our brother or sister even when they sin against us. We will be transformed into doing what Jesus calls us to do, which is to move toward them, burdened not by our injury, but to be burdened by their peril. To move toward them, not as our own advocates. I'm going to tell you what you did to me, and I want you to admit and repent. That can sound really pious, by the way, when you do it. But Jesus is saying, I want you to move toward them as their advocate. Wait a second, you were offended? I, I mean, I was offended, Jesus, by their sin. You're not saying it wasn't sin. You're saying it was sin. That's a high threshold. And you're telling me, as the offended party, that I am to move toward them, not burdened by my injury which you acknowledge, but by their peril. And you want me to move toward them then, not as an advocate for my own cause, like a plaintiff's lawyer, 
but to move toward them as their advocate, as their defense lawyer, taking side with them against their sin. That's what you want me to do? That is amazing. There's only one way you can do that if you remember that that's not just their story, but your story. That that's what God has done for you. You see, you'll sing the music of the gospel. You'll sing to others the music of the gospel that you hear. And if you are are chintzy, in your forgiveness, if I am reluctant to move toward a brother or sister who's sinned against me, guess what? I'm only giving them what I think God gives me. And so, friends, let's acknowledge the truth that no one, no one, no one, no one could ever sin as much or as badly against me as I have sinned against my heavenly Father. No one, no one. No one will ever, no brother or sister in Christ will ever sin against you, friends, as much or as badly as you yourself have sinned against the Heavenly Father. And what did he do? It was not his will that you should perish. He didn't despise you in your sin. He sent his Son from on high to come for you, to find you as you had strayed, to rescue you, to enter your lostness, to identify you with you, identify with you in your lostness in order to extricate you from your lostness so far identifying with you that he literally made himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ made himself your sin on the cross to bear your judgment that you had deserved, identifying with you completely, going to the bottom of your lostness so that he himself could bear its full weight and consequences and by his death and resurrection extricate you, extract you from your own sin. When you remember, when I remember that that is my story, your story, and when that story is precious to us, then then that music of the gospel that we hear over our lives, that we sing, we will be eager to sing it over others because I will never find myself in a situation where I am being called by Jesus Christ to absorb greater consequences or costs of sin from somebody else than he has personally absorbed in his body for my sin. Now, if I remember that, that will change the way I do relationships. And so today, friends, as we go to the Lord's table, I want you to remember, my brothers and sisters, I want you to remember, I want you to bask in this glory that the good shepherd did not despise you in your sin. It was not his will that you should perish. He came for you. He found you. He bought you. And when he extricated you from your sin, he rejoiced over you. It was not anger that energized his pursuit of you. It was his great love for you. And because he knows that just like me, your faith is weak, And this story is so wonderful, it is easy for us to treat it like it's not real. Friends, he's given us the table. And there is no greater coming together imaginable in the universe 
than the union that Jesus Christ achieves between the holy God and guilty sinners. And there is more energy released in that union that is brought about by the power of God's own heart. There is more energy released into the world through that union than anything we can imagine. In the end, what's going to happen is that reconciliation, that fusion, if you will, is going to end up renewing the entire cosmos and the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay because of what was done at Calvary, friends, and we stand in the echoes this morning of that glorious music. Let us bask in it together. Let's pray. Lord, come. We're not done diving into the music of the gospel, so help us for these minutes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.